This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. We had come to what I've called theological turning points. These are crucial points in the early church where foundational doctrines are formulated and in effect become standard for the church. They affect us today. We looked, first of all, at the New Testament canon. Crucial, crucial question for us today. And then we started in with the question of the Trinity. We made good progress. We're going to finish that tonight. And then we're going to look at Christology, how that was formulated. This story is so exciting, both of these. I, I hope you feel all of this. And I, there's no question, you certainly will, as I explain it to you. Now, when we left matters last time, where were we? That was a rhetorical question, okay? Where were we? Well, we had seen the triumph of Nicaea. Orthodoxy had triumphed, right? and had triumphed over various misguided notions such as monarchianism, modalism. And one of the things that if you look back about the story is that it seemed like the fortunes of orthodoxy are very much tied up with various emperors. If the emperor is for you, then your view is going to do pretty well. Well, things were going pretty well for the Orthodox folks, the people at Nicaea. I mean, after all, Constantine himself suggested the term homoousios, of the same essence. And so that became standardized orthodoxy. But then Constantine died. He had two sons who emerged after a few years, one in the east, one in the west. Now, Constans in the West continues his father's more orthodox orientation. He supports orthodoxy, Constans does. But he dies in 350 A.D. And the problem is, is that his brother, Constantius, is an Arian. And now Constantius is the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And he's an Arian. So what happens to orthodoxy as established at Nicaea? It goes down the tubes. The triumph of Nicaea is overthrown by Arianism. The Arians take charge. And what do the Arians do? Well, so far, 
they've banished Athanasius three times from Alexandria. Who is Athanasius? But he is the preeminent exponent of Nicene Orthodoxy. Three times so far, they have kicked him out of his own town. We also saw that the pressure from the Arians is very, very intense. So intense that another preeminent exponent of homoousios, of Nicene Orthodoxy, Hosius of Cordova, is forced, compelled, under pressure, under duress, to capitulate. A broken man. And yet, he does come back at the end. And then Liberius, the bishop of Rome, he too capitulates. So the pressure is on. Nicaea is out and Arianism is in and it's in the dominant position. That's where we are in history. It is a tense time as we look back. It looks like the bad guys are winning. Now, the Arianism that gained control, where are we? We are now going to turn right here to three views. Just mention, mention Bishop Liberius. Now, look at the various views here. Now, there are, were three basic views, two types of Arianism, and then Nicene, the Nicene view, that were in existence now around 360 A.D. The most extreme Arian view is heterousios. They are the ones who want to stress that the Son was different. Heterousios. Different in essence from the Father. These are the radical Arians. Heterousios. The Son was different in essence from the Father. Now, although this view was uh, circulating, there were people who maintained this view, it was not the dominant Arian view. There was a more moderate Arian perspective. And that is the view epitomized by this term, homoi usios. Homoi. Usios. And this more moderate Arian view stressed that the Son was similar, not different, but similar in essence to the Father. It comes, obviously, a, a step closer to the more nice to the Nicene idea. And there's one extra little thing I want you to note about the moderate Arian view that I think helps us understand this group a little bit. These are the more, the moderate Arians are the dominant Arian view at this point. Now this group included some of those who basically were in accord with the orthodox formulations of Nicaea, except that they were troubled by the language of homoousios. To them, that language had been used by Paul of Samosata. It had a heretical sort of notion, a connotation to it. 
And it troubled him. It seemed too close to Unitarianism. It seemed to suggest Unitarianism. And so they opted for something a little less forceful. Thus, they come up, came up with homoi usios. And then, of course, there are still a few of those who hold to homo usios, the Nicene view, where the son was the same essence as the father. The three views. The son is different from the father, in essence. The son is similar to the uh, father, in essence. And here they are the exact same in essence. And at this point in time, it is the second view that dominates. You mean this group here? First or second group? No, they, they have in view the Nicene view. These are the, Nice these are the advocates of Nicene orthodoxy. Well, things don't look so good for the Orthodox. Uh, the only good news is that the two Aryan groups sort of don't always get along with one another. So there's some debate among the two Aryan groups. But then suddenly, the tables turn again. And what happens? But Constantius, the emperor, dies in 361 A.D. Again, the fortunes of Nicene Orthodoxy seem to turn on the favor of the emperor. This always bugs me when politics seems to play such a deciding uh, role in the determination of orthodoxy. In the final analysis, we have to trust in the providence of God that he used the, the intentions, good and bad, uh, practical and impractical, of these emperors and other politicians which permitted Nicene orthodoxy to finally win out. At any rate, with the death... Well, that was a... <laughs> That was a cute sneeze. I'm sorry, <laughs> anyway, Constantius dies in 361 A.D. And now the door is open again for Nicene Orthodoxy to come back. Constantius, when he died, what's the first thing that happens? Athanasius hears about it and he heads running back to Alexandria. 361 A.D. And immediately, Athanasius begins to reestablish Nicene Orthodoxy. Things are beginning to look up for the Orthodox folk. And then their hopes are dashed because the new emperor is Julian the Apostate. Boo! And so Julian the Apostate again banishes Athanasius for the fourth time because he is an enemy of the pagan gods. And so in 363, poor, patient Athanasius 
is exiled, banished for a fourth time. Incidentally, it was during this fourth exile. And we only know little bits and pieces of this story, but apparently he was on a ship, on a boat, going in the Nile River, when two paid assassins came at him, and he was able to evade them. And I don't know if, if he knocked them into the water or whatever, but he somehow evaded two paid assassins. No doubt Arians. <laughs> yes. The last yes. Where he was the last main one. Julian the Apostate, the same one. What? Did he kill As far as I know, he was he he wanted to reestablish paganism as opposed to Arianism, which was a Christian view as far as he was concerned. So yes, I believe he did. But the good news. Again, are your are emotions up and down? The good news is, is that Julian, a couple of years later, was killed in battle in 363. 363, March 363, Julian the Apostate is killed in battle. And everything changes again. Very, very rapid change here. And everything hinges again upon the favor of the emperor or his theological inclinations. And again, Athanasius trots back to Alexandria. He returned in, in March 363. Yes, he left, I believe, yeah, in 363. It was a, for a fairly short period of time. The fourth banishment was a short period of time. Julian was succeeded by Jovian as emperor. But Jovian didn't last long enough to do any damage either, <laughs> either way. He died the following year in 364. And Jovian was then succeeded by two brothers who divide up the empire east and west. Valentinian I took over the west. So we've gone from Julian the Apostate, who was succeeded by Jovian, who lasted only a year, and then he was succeeded by both of these individuals, two brothers, Valentinian I, who took the west, and Valens, who took the east. And the east at this point now is, at least as far as Athanasius is concerned, is crucial. Well, Valentinian I uh, didn't have much to say about these matters, but Valens was a dedicated Arian. And he rules in the east. And so once again, Athanasius is banished from Alexandria. Count them. Five times Athanasius is banished from Alexandria. But political pressure became kind of great on Emperor Valens. And he needed support in his war against the Goths. And so he permitted Athanasius to return to Alexandria in 366. 
So the last, the fifth banishment lasted for somewhere around a year, from three, in 365 to 366. Athanasius, again, returns, is reinstated as bishop, and again, he continues to fight for Nicene Orthodoxy, even with an Arian emperor of the East. And he fights until his death, May 2nd, 373. He died at the age of 74. Athanasius died May 2nd, 373, and never, ever gave up his Nicene Orthodoxy. No, though, no, no, they weren't. They were not related to Jovian, as far as I know. Athanasius, to me, is a lot like the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going again and again and again. Now, see, I've given you something that will stick in your mind about Athanasius. You'll never forget that, I, I assure you. Athanasius, the Energizer Bunny. Anything's possible. You don't know who. <laughs> well, he's a little he's a little bunny that has a battery that just keeps him going all the time. You've seen the commercial, okay? Although Athanasius died before the final triumph of Nicene Orthodoxy, his labors essentially ensured that, in fact, it would triumph in the end. So when we talk about the, the eventual, the final triumph of Nicene Orthodoxy, there no doubt were many contributing factors, but none is more important than the persistence of Athanasius as he fought for and stressed Nicene Orthodoxy. Someone who followed him, Gregory of Nazianzus, wrote this of Athanasius. Quote, When I praise Athanasius, I praise virtue itself, because he combines all virtues in one person. I think we owe him a debt. Okay. So, we now want to come to another major council called the Council of Constantinople. The Council of Constantinople, 381 A.D. And here we see the final triumph of Nicene Orthodoxy. 381. Constantinople was the second ecumenical council. Ecumenical means, it's not a rhetorical question this time. Universal. Universal. That is, there are representatives from all parts who come and sit and make deliberations. By the way, what was the first ecumenical council? Very, very impressive. Now, besides the labors of Athanasius, who upheld orthodoxy. The other 
persons who are also valiant in their efforts were the Cappadocian fathers. I think I've spelled that for you up there. They are three, a trinity of sorts. Basil the Great. Basil's dates are 329 to 379. Let's just give you a reference point. His brother, Gregory of Nyssa, whose dates are 335 to 395. And their friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, whose dates are 329 to 389. Should I repeat those? Basil, 329 to 379. Gregory of Nyssa, 335 to 395. And Gregory of Nazianzus, 329 to 389. Now these three theologians uh, perform a great service for 4th century orthodoxy. Because these three, and I'm speaking in general, often, and I, I hesitate to speak with Dale Coulter in the class because he knows a great deal about these individuals. But I'm speaking of them as a group. Uh, and we will talk about individuals in, in some cases later on. But anyway, the three Cappadocian fathers, they were able to do something that Athanasius was not. And that is they were able to remove the difficulties which some Christians felt about the term homoousios and its Unitarian connotation. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.